Well, hello, Willingdon Church. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to lead us in the study of God's Word. Uh, We are continuing in our series in the book of Philippians. Actually, we're finishing off our series in the book of Philippians today, and uh, and that's exciting. Uh, We've been in this series for a few months now. It's called No Matter What. And it was actually a few months ago that I had the privilege of leading off this series with us together. This was right at the beginning of when we started to do church online. And so we were just kind of getting used to things and we were just kind of figuring that out. And it's hard to believe that it's already been a few months since then and we're still doing this online. I don't think any of us would have expected that. Uh, But we are grateful that we continue to be able to have this platform uh, to meet together even if it is remote. Well, so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 10 all the way to the end of the book. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. And as you do that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Father, we thank you that even though we are separated physically, that we could be together in spirit as your people. And so God, we pray that today as we open your word together, that you would just be powerfully present by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you'd open our ears to hear the things that you need us to hear today and that you'd help us to respond in lives of obedience. God, we pray against any distractions, Father, anything that would keep us from fully engaging in what you have for us. And God, we ask that you would be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Philippians chapter four, again, starting in verse 10. And as you're turning there, I just want to say something about this text just in general. I think there's probably a good chance that if you're the kind of person who likes to underline or maybe likes to highlight in your Bible, I'm going to say there's a good chance that there's maybe a verse here that you've underlined or highlighted. Uh, Take a look with me and, and see if this is true. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13, is one of these verses that tends to get highlighted quite a bit. It's the verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or maybe your translation says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, probably for a lot of us, as soon as I read that verse, it sounds very familiar. Uh, Chances are, if you grew up in the church, this is a verse you've heard before. Maybe it's a verse you've memorized. And I'm going to say there's probably a good chance that you've actually underlined this in your Bible or put a little mark beside this verse. It's, It's a very memorable one. In fact, Philippians 4.13 is one of those verses I like to call a coffee cup verse. Now, what I mean by this is, is nothing other than the fact that as believers, this is one of those verses we like to have written on coffee mugs, or we like to put it on a poster, or we like to engrave it on a piece of wood and use it as a decoration in our house. It's, it's one of those verses that kind of just stands out to us that we really love to quote and to memorize and to commit to our hearts. I was on Amazon a couple of days ago and I was looking up Philippians 4.13 to see if this was, was actually true. And I was surprised to see as soon as I cl- typed in Philippians 4.13, all kinds of results started popping up. Uh, there were coffee mugs, there were posters, there were, you name it, anything you want you could have engraved with this verse. They were all for sale on Amazon. And now just to make sure that this wasn't just something that every verse had, I typed in Philippians 4 verse 10 and nothing came up. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 11, nothing came up. It was just Philippians 4 verse 13. And, and again, I can see why this verse has become so popular. It's catchy, it's, it's short and compact, it has a great message, and in many ways it can stand on its own and we can understand it without looking at the other verses around it. 
But there's a challenge that we face whenever we come across what I call coffee cup verses. Uh, There's a challenge that we face whenever we take a verse out of its context in Scripture and just kind of have it standing alone by itself. The danger is actually that we read the wrong background or the wrong context into this verse and make it mean something that it doesn't really mean. My fear is actually that this is something that a lot of us have done with Philippians 4.13. Let me explain what I mean by this. When I was younger, one of the messages that I heard quite a lot growing up was, you can do anything that you set your mind to. Now, this isn't something that people just told me. This was something that was out there. This is a message that's been out there for a while, actually, that if you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you give it enough effort, you can accomplish anything that you set your mind to. I remember one time, especially growing up, when my younger brother, he was told, you can be anything that you want to be when you grow up. He was probably about five or six at the time, and he thought about that. He thought just how incredible that statement was. And he said, if I could be anything that I want to be when I grow up, I really want to be a tiger. And I remember my parents kind of saying, well, Justin, you can't be a tiger. You can't, you know, do that. But, but anything else really that you want to be, that you set your mind to, this is what you can do. This message was just kind of out there. And I think for a lot of people, when they hear this kind of thing, the the place that their mind immediately goes to is success from a worldly point of view, right? So when you say you can do anything you want to do, you can be anything, anyone you want to be, oftentimes what comes along with that is this idea that you can have the best job or you can have the perfect marriage. You can have the best spouse, the best kids. You can earn the highest salary, You can have the nicest job, the nicest office. You can retire with the nicest things. Oftentimes when we use these phrases, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And the reason I bring this up is because I think it's often against this background that we read a verse like John, or sorry, Philippians 4.13. We read Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it's really easy to hear those words and understand them as, I can be anything I want to be. I can do anything that I set my mind to. I can accomplish whatever I really work hard towards. And Jesus is going to give me the strength to do it. Now, as we, as we think about this, for many people, the, the verse that we just talked about, Philippians 4.13, is a way of talking about the American dream and Jesus is going to help me do it. But what if I told you that this verse actually isn't about you being able to accomplish everything you want to accomplish and Jesus helping you do it? What if I told you that this verse isn't trying to tell you that you can do everything that you put your mind to, that you can accomplish everything that you've ever dreamed of? Well, I'm going to tell you that's, that's the case. That verse isn't really talking about this. But I will tell you this, Philippians 4.13 does have a profound message that we do need to hear that's going to be really relevant for all of our lives in this time. And to hear it afresh, what we need to do is actually put it back into its biblical context so we can hear it the way it was meant to be heard. So with all that being said, let's take a closer look now at some of the verses around Philippians 4.13 to get a sense of how it's being used and how this verse can encourage us in the lives that we're living right now. Uh, So if you want to turn down to your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Philippians 4. Let's start at looking at verses 10 to 12. Again, this is Paul writing now to the church in Philippi. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, it might be a bit confusing just kind of jumping into this text like this. Let me give you a bit of a background to what's going on here. Uh, Paul, as we've seen over the last number of weeks, he's been writing to the church in Philippi, talking about how he's doing, talking about how they're doing, encouraging them in the faith, faith, and really just expressing his appreciation for the partnership that they've had in the gospel from the very first day that Paul visited them up until the present moment. And specifically right here, Paul is now starting to give thanks for a financial gift that the church in Philippi has sent to him. It's maybe a bit hard to see at first, but this is what Paul is talking about when he says that they've revived their concern for him now that they've had the opportunity. Uh, That's Paul's way of talking about how they've given him a financial gift now that they've had the opportunity to do so. And he's going to go on to talk more about this gift in verses 14 to 17. Let's read those uh, together now. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's thanksgiving to the church for the gift that he sent them. But if we're really honest with ourselves, this probably isn't the way that we would say thank you for a financial gift. Right? For, probably for a lot of us, we've read this passage before and we've actually missed the, th- the fact that Paul was giving thanks for a financial gift. It, it's kind of just almost subtly in there and not really explicitly mentioned. Right? For, for most of us, if we were receiving financial support from someone, a financial gift, we would probably say something like, wow, thank you so much for giving me that money. Uh, it, it was so needed. Uh, it's so appreciated. This is how I'm going to use it. I just want to say thank you again for giving me such a generous donation, an amazing gift of financial support. But that's not quite the tone that Paul takes here. And it's interesting because Bible scholars have kind of talked about what's actually happening here. Uh, some people have said, well, Paul doesn't actually seem to be very thankful for the gift that they've given him. Some people go so far as to say that this is kind of a thankless thanks. In other words, Paul's kind of thankful, but not really thankful. And, you know, he's trying to just express some kind of gratitude, but he doesn't really care that much. Some people would go as far as to say this is a thankless thanks. Well, no, that's not what's happening. Paul is certainly grateful for the gift that the church has given him. And we see this in verses like verse 10, where it says, I rejoice greatly that you revived your concern for me. Uh, Verse 14, he says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And then again in verse 18, he says, I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so Paul is thankful and that's, that's not in question, but there are these statements that he makes that kind of lead us to question, well, why would Paul say it in this way? 
It almost seems as though Paul is trying to, in some way, downplay the thankfulness he has for the gift that has been given. And we see this in verses like verse 11. After mentioning the, the gift for the first time, Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need. And in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift. You see, if you didn't know any better, it's almost as if Paul is saying, well, thank you for the gift, Philippian church, but the fact is, I wasn't really seeking the gift. And if I'm honest, I didn't really need the gift. So what's going on here? Why would Paul do things this way? Well, if you read the commentaries, a lot of Bible commentators will point to things like the way that friendship and reciprocity and giving and receiving worked in the ancient world. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can read about, just the dynamics of what would happen when someone would give a gift and the appropriate way to respond, the appropriate way not to respond, the obligations that were put on a person when they received a gift. There's a lot of interesting stuff there that I think can help to shed some light into what's going on here in Paul's Thanksgiving. But I think there's something a bit more simple that we can consider that is actually pretty obvious when we look at Paul's ministry as a whole. The fact is, Paul is very careful the way that he receives money from churches or deals with money in general as it relates to his ministry. Uh, This is something that Paul is very, very careful about. He doesn't want to give the impression that he's motivated by the wrong motivations. See, in Paul's day, as, as there are still today, unfortunately, there were charlatans who would go from city to city and they would gather a following around themselves. Uh, these were people that would come into town, they say, I have a new teaching, and they would start gathering a following of people, oftentimes preying upon those who were vulnerable, and they would ask for financial support. They'd say, I, I can't teach for free, I need financial support, and they would get people to give them money, and they would continue teaching, and then all of a sudden, one night, that person would skip town, take the money, and never be seen from again. Now, you can imagine Paul as an itinerant preacher, someone who's coming from town to town, sharing a new teaching, the teaching of the gospel. The last thing that Paul wants to do is give the impression that he's after people's money. If you read the book of Acts as well, there's times when Paul is actually forced out of one city very quickly, or he's forced into another city very quickly. And so the last thing that Paul wants to give is the impression that he's just after his people's money, and then he's going to take off quickly and just go to a next, the next town and do the same kind of thing. And so because of this, Paul in his ministry is actually very selective with whom he receives money from. Uh, there's places that he goes where people say, Paul, let us you know, support you financially. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to take your money. And, and Paul would do this you know, by a couple of different ways. Sometimes he would resort to tent making, which was one of the trades that he had as, at his disposal. And so he would kind of, during the day, he'd be in the shop making tents and, and kind of in that community working hard so he could support himself. And then at certain times, he'd be sharing the gospel and just kind of working at one job to be able to support him teaching and preaching the gospel. Uh, Many people still do this today. It's called bivocational ministry. Sometimes it's actually just called tent making after the Apostle Paul and what he did. That's where that phrase comes from. Another way that Paul did this, though, is sometimes he would receive support from another church to minister in a specific town or city and not have to charge those people. Uh, When he ministered in Corinth, this is exactly what he did. And we read about this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7 to 9. It says this, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. 
I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. See, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth in this letter. He's saying, listen, I didn't take anything from anyone. Paul's saying, you can't bring those kind of accusations against me because I didn't burden anyone. I didn't take anyone's money. He says, when I was with you, I I labored hard, but also when I needed my needs met, there were brothers from Macedonia who supplied my needs. I didn't burden any one of you, and I'm not going to burden any of you. For the sake of the gospel in Corinth, Paul forwent forwent uh, what he considered to be his right of receiving money for preaching the gospel. He says, I'm not going to take that because I don't want to lay a stumbling block. And there were brothers in Macedonia that supplied his need. Now, this is interesting for us because Philippi is, of course, one of the leading cities of Macedonia. And it's quite likely that the church in Philippi is the church that Paul is talking about who supplied Paul's need. See, this is one of the interesting dynamics between Paul and the Philippians. The Philippian church is one of the few churches that Paul said, yes, I will accept financial support from you. Uh, we see this right away at the beginning with Lydia hosting Paul and his companions. But we, we read that the Philippians continue to support Paul throughout his ministry and to support him financially. And this is where I think we see the dynamic taking place here. Paul has a great concern in terms of how he's perceived relating to money. The Philippians are one of the few churches that he says, yes, I will receive financial support from you. I will take money from you in terms of helping the ministry go forward. We're partners in the gospel. But Paul wants to make crystal clear that he is not in this friendship relationship. He's not in this relationship with the Philippian church because of what he can get out of it financially. And I think what's going on here is Paul's trying to downplay the financial side of things because that's actually not what it's about to him. Paul's not in it for the money. He says this in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's Paul's way of saying, I care more about you than I care about your money. Gordon Fee in his commentary says it really well. Allow me to read a quote from him. The relationship is not a kind of business transaction. Rather, their gift is evidence of their being in partnership with him in affliction and for the sake of the gospel. Thus, he concludes that money, material support for his own needs, is ultimately irrelevant. What counts is what God is doing in their lives. See, for Paul, more important than him receiving money is what that money represents in the hearts and lives of the people that he's ministering to. And so he rejoices that every time the Philippians give, God is at work in their lives. Every time they give, they're demonstrating that God is their God and money is not their God. Every time they give, they're partnering in the gospel. And Paul says, that's what I'm after. I'm not after your money. A few weeks ago, my sister, uh, who's living in Ontario with her kids, uh, she sent me a video of two of her kids playing on a toy Jeep. And this wasn't just any kind of, you know, little toy Jeep. This is one of those toy Jeeps where you can actually, if you're small enough, sit inside, you know, put your foot on the pedal, hold the steering wheel, and you can drive around in this toy Jeep. And so my nephew and, and my niece were in this Jeep together, and they were having a blast. They were driving around. And I was instantly reminded of my own childhood. Uh, not that I had a toy car or anything like that, but there was a kid down my street named Stephen. 
And Stephen had the coolest toy I'd ever seen. It was exactly like I just described, a toy car that you could sit in, that you could hold the steering wheel, you could press the gas pedal, and you could just go zoom in around the street. I remember the first day I saw Stephen and his older sister in this car together and they were going past my house on the sidewalk. I knew that from that point on, my mission was to get a ride in this car that Stephen had. And so I developed a plan. My plan was simple. It was called Operation Bike Slowly Past Stephen's House. Now, I guess at that age, I wasn't quite you know, bold enough to go and actually ask Stephen for a ride or talk to him directly. I'm not sure how old I was. I want to say around eight years old. But my plan was simply to do this, to bike slowly past Stephen's house and kind of just you know, look to see if there was any activity going on, maybe in the front yard, maybe in the backyard, see if there was any movement in the windows. And I would bike by. If I didn't see anything, I would go a few doors down, turn around my bike and start biking the opposite direction, just looking to see is anything going on there. I did this a couple of times. I'm sure they probably looked out their window and saw me and wondered what I was doing. Uh, But after a few days, it finally happened. I was biking slowly past Stephen's house and I was looking and all of a sudden from the backyard, I see Stephen's driving this car down the driveway up to the front. And I thought, my time has come. My time has come. This is going to be awesome. And so I, you know, kind of slow down my bike. I stop. I said, hey, Stephen, you know, good to see you. And I say, that car is awesome. Wow, that's so cool. And he says, oh, yeah, no, we love it. It's, it's an awesome car. And, and we kind of went back and forth with a little bit of small talk. But I quickly realized that Stephen wasn't actually going to offer me a ride in the car. Uh, Stephen wasn't offering. I wasn't asking. And we kind of came to this point in the conversation where there's a bit of an awkward silence. And I just kind of said goodbye and I, and I biked away. And what happened after that, I'm ashamed to say, is that I no longer really had a desire to be friends with Stephen, right? For the, for the few days before, that's all I, I just wanted to be Stephen's friend. That, you know, he was a person I really wanted to become friends with only because of what I thought I could get out of that friendship, only because I wanted to have a ride in that car that Stephen had. And as soon as I realized there was no chance I was going to have a ride in that car, my need for that friendship or my desire for that friendship went away completely. Now, I I hope that I'm getting better at this, that I'm not continuing to act like this, but I'm afraid that I've actually passed this trait on to my son. Uh, My son, Carter, he's going to be turning five in July. And uh, my parents live in Ontario, so sometimes we'll FaceTime back and forth with them. And it's not uncommon at this stage in Carter's life to start a conversation with with my parents by saying, Grandma, Grandpa, guess what's on my birthday list? And Jamie and I, we tell Carter, Carter, we don't have relationships with people for what we get out of them. Uh, We care about people because of who they are and what God is doing in their lives. And I think Paul's trying to really emphasize that same point here. He's telling the Philippian church or trying to express to them, I'm not just in this relationship because of what I can get out of it. Your gift was received and I'm thankful for it and it's going to go to good use. But that's not the reason we have this relationship. That's not the reason I care about you. I care about you because of who you are and because of what God is doing in your life and as that's evidenced in the giving of this gift. See, again, Paul is desperate to tell the Philippians, I'm not in it for the money. Paul goes even further than this, though. Look back to now to verse 10. Paul says, It was kind of you to revive your concern for me, 
You always cared, but didn't always have the opportunity. But then he says this in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See, Paul goes even further. It's, it's one thing for him to say, I'm not after the gift or I'm not after your money. It's another thing for him to say, I don't actually need this gift. I don't actually need your money. And, and it's crazy because if you think about Paul's circumstances, Paul's most likely in Roman imprisonment during this letter. He's imprisonment, in prison either way. Paul says, I don't actually need this gift. And we kind of want to push back and say, well, Paul, if anyone is in need of financial help right now, it's you. And if you think about kind of what prison was like in the ancient world, it was one of these places where if people, if friends and family didn't come and try to meet your financial and material needs, oftentimes those needs just wouldn't be met. Right? So if you think about anyone being in a place where they need financial support, where they need material support, it would be a person like Paul someone who's in prison, someone who doesn't actually have their own resources and needs to rely on other people. And yet Paul says, not that I speak of being in need. And he gives his reason. He says, for I have learned to be content in every situation. He says, even apart from your money, even apart from any help that you could give me, he says this in verse 10, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of place, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul has learned to be content in every circumstance. Now, the, the word that Paul uses in verse 11, it's a Greek word, artarkes. It's a word uh, that's translated as being content. This is a word that we only see, I think, a few times in the New Testament, but it's a word that was used quite commonly among Stoic philosophers. And for the Stoic philosophers to be autarchase was a way of talking about being self-sufficient. Uh, if you were autarchase, you were content in your circumstances, you were self-sufficient. If you could deal with whatever life threw your way through your own inner resources, through your own abilities and strengths and wherewithal, if you could face whatever life threw at you, you were considered autarchase. You were considered self-sufficient. And Paul says, I've learned to be content in every situation. I've learned to do what the Stoic philosophers long to learn to do. I've actually mastered that. And when you look at Paul's life, you see actually, yeah, he's, he has been through it all. He's been through the highs and the lows. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24 to 27, you get an example of some of the lowlights of Paul's ministry and Paul's life. He says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." See, Paul's saying, I've done it all. And Paul, of course, also had the, the positive experiences in life. He had the joys of seeing many people come to faith. He experienced hospitality from different brothers and sisters throughout the world. He experienced these incredible moments of God working powerfully through him and doing miracles in his presence. And Paul says, I have learned to be content in all of it. In the highs and the lows and everything between, I've learned the secret 
of being content. And the question is, well, Paul, how did you learn this secret? And the answer is he learned it in the exact opposite way that the Stoic philosophers tried to attain it. You see, when Paul uses that word autarkase, he's not talking about self-sufficiency as if that has anything to do with him. He's using it in a way actually to point away from himself towards Jesus. And it's right in this context that we have the famous Philippians 4.13. Paul says, I've learned to be content in any situation. I know the secret of everything you could throw at me. How does he do this? It says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, the context here makes it so clear. Paul isn't saying, I can do anything I put my mind to. I can accomplish anything I want to accomplish. I can be anything I want to be. No, Paul is admitting that things have not gone his way. Paul is writing from Roman imprisonment. He said, my my hope is to go minister over here, and instead he ends up in prison. Paul has been abandoned by many of his friends. He'd been betrayed by other Christian workers, those who are trying to make him miserable in prison and steal from the ministry that he's been doing. Paul is in a situation where, in terms of what he was hoping for in his life, in terms of the goals that he had set, there were many things that Paul did not accomplish. Paul isn't here writing that you can be successful and you can be well-known and you can have the best career. Paul is saying, no matter what happened to me, As I followed Jesus, no matter how difficult it was at times, no matter how amazing it was at times, I can do all of those things because Christ is the one who strengthens me. And so for us today, the message that we need to hear from this verse is not that you can accomplish everything that you've ever dreamed about or anything that you've set your mind to. The message is that even when you don't accomplish those things, you can persevere because Jesus gives you strength. I think for many of us, 2020 has been a year where maybe we kind of entered into 2020 thinking this is going to be the year when everything changes. This is going to be the year when I accomplish all these things. This is going to be the year when my new business venture takes off or I I get that promotion at work. And for so many of us, 2020 has been a year where thing after thing has just fallen out of place, where we, we planned the trip, but we couldn't take it. We thought we were going to get a promotion, but rather we got laid off. We thought we were going to be secure and healthy this year, and then we got sick. And, and for many of us, when we come to these moments where we experience failures and setbacks, we ask the question, well, how can this be? Why would God let this happen to me? Isn't God wanting me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to accomplish these things? Doesn't he want me to have what I want to have? And Paul here reminds us that even when life falls apart, even when we try to do something and fail, even when we make plans and those plans come to nothing, it's in those moments that we need to hear Paul say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Craig Keener is a commentator. He told the story once of a football team that said, uh, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It was a Christian football team at a Christian school and, and they they had that as their verse. They claimed that verse and they went out and they played football and they lost horribly. Uh, they completely lost the game. And, and one of the members was talking to Craig and saying, well, Craig, how does this make any sense? We, we said we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And Craig says, yes, and in this case, that means you can endure even this battle loss because Christ gives you the strength. And, and again, it's, it's this different way of looking at this verse. But the reality is this. 
for so many of us, we often place our confidence and our sufficiency in the wrong things. Uh, maybe for you right now, you're, you're feeling pretty good about life and things have been good for you. And, and you look at things like, well, I have these relationships in my family that are, that are really strong and I've got these social connections so that I know if something bad happens, I have people to call upon and, and I have good health so I'm not worried about getting sick and I have you know, a healthy bank account and I have funds saved for emergencies so I, I can have sufficiency when we realize that actually all of those things can be taken away in a very moment. And if we want to have contentment that truly lasts, that's truly solid, the only place we can look to that for that is from Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're just exploring all of this. You're thinking about Christianity. Someone's invited you to take in a sermon and this is all new to you. And you're, you're wondering, is Christianity going to be something that if I, if I kind of buy in or if I sign up, that things are going to go really well for me? Can God help me accomplish what I want to accomplish? Can God help me to have a blessed life where everything goes perfectly and things just kind of are smooth sailing? And the answer to that is actually, no, that's not a reason to become a Christian. The reason to become a Christian is because you want a contentment in all circumstances that only Jesus can provide. And because he died on the cross for our sins and rose again victorious, he can provide that contentment in every aspect of life. See, Philippians 4.13 isn't saying that you can do anything that you set your mind to. It's not saying that you can be whatever you want to be or accomplish whatever you set out to accomplish. But it does give us the hope that when life throws us a curveball and when things aren't going our way, that Jesus is there for you, he's with you, and he'll give you the strength to move through as you seek to follow him. Philippians 4.13 is a coffee cup verse, and and I think it's going to continue to be but I want to encourage you, the next time you think about this verse, when you see it on a coffee cup or when you see it on a poster or when you see it on a decoration, remember the full meaning of what this verse is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us even when life is tough. Father, we think of the example of the Apostle Paul as he wrote this letter in prison when things just hadn't gone his way when friends had betrayed him, when he was financially in dire straits, when enemies rose up and slandered him, Father, that he could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And God, may that be true for us, that even when we face the difficulties of this world and when things don't go our way, that we know that we can endure whatever life brings our way as we follow you, because you give us strength. Father, I pray for those who just in this moment, in this week, they need your strength more than ever. God, I pray that you would wrap your loving arms around them and that you would carry them through this time. And God, for all of us, we pray that you would help us not to rely on the things of this world that are so fleeting, but to set our hope on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.